If you're a fan of James Bond movies, as I am, you remember seeing Sean Connery and other Bond actors requesting a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. I guess that is the drink for the man who knows what he wants in life. Now, in my James Bond fantasy world, I, being very suave and debonair, walk confidently into the club dressed in my tuxedo, every eye looking my way. And the head waiter emerges and inquires, and what will you be having this evening, Mr. Bond? And I would say, tea, half sweet, half unsweet, lime, not lemon. Very good, sir, the bartender would say, as all those in the club nod, the club would run out of limes that evening. Well, for the title of this message, as you can see, I have cleverly turned James Bond's phrase to stirred, not shaken. Why? Because though the world is clearly being shaken during the coronavirus outbreak, we and our faith need not be. In fact, we should be stirred in deep ways. Will you join me in prayer as I try and explain what I mean and hopefully what God means about all this? Father, thank you that we can come before you. Thank you that we can have a little fun. Thank you that we can enjoy uh, a baptism that uh, the kingdom of God moves on, life goes on, uh, even in the midst of this uh, social distancing. Lord, thank you that you are never, really, never socially distanced from us, that you are near to us. In fact, you dwell in us. And I ask you to open our hearts and minds and open our eyes, Lord, to what you would have us learn today. And may we leave this time together glorifying your holy name. We bless your name, Lord. Amen. You know, here in North Carolina, Western North Carolina, we have been largely protected, thank the Lord, from uh, really the ravages of the disease. Uh, some other places, as you know, they've had terrible loss of life, New York City, Detroit, uh, Chicago, New Orleans, even out in Colorado, places like that. It's hard to imagine a death toll of over 90,000 in our country alone, not to mention the grief and suffering and loss of life in Italy and Spain, the UK, France, China, elsewhere, by the way, with people whom God loves as much as he loves Americans. And it's hard to watch and listen to the stories of the elderly and frail, including veterans, in nursing homes and hospitals succumbing to this terrible sickness alone, apart from family and friends. How awful that the natural and necessary process of grieving in person has been cruelly blocked from the lives of those in mourning. Death is horrible enough Death alone is almost too sad to bear. But we've also admired the heroism of weary and worried healthcare workers in hotspot areas, risking their lives to save other people. And the heroism of first responders, law enforcement, firemen, and even those everyday heroes beyond the plastic shields serving in grocery stores, post offices, and other essential businesses have reminded us of how risky life has become. And we never know when any one of us at a moment's notice may be called to heroism. Now, as followers of Christ, we all want to do our part to slow the spread of the virus, but on another level, we get antsy. We want more freedom. We want things to get back to normal, whatever the new normal might look like. It's hard to know what's best, and so we must pray for wisdom for our leaders. Our hearts also go out to the millions of Americans who have lost their jobs and who wait anxiously for government stimulus checks or small business loans to help them somehow stay afloat. 
As you may have heard, we had an almost uh, staggering, nearly 15% unemployment rate in the month of April. Some businesses will make it, sadly many will not. These are difficult days, no question about it. So what is God up to in the midst of all this? In a moment, we're going to look at one section of the Bible that gives us a glimpse into the purposes of God, but we have to humbly admit that we only see a snapshot of what he's doing. He sees the whole movie. In fact, he's the producer. Which brings us to our first point. God is shaking the world. In the scripture I'm about to read, the writer of the book of Hebrews had been comparing and contrasting the old agreement or covenant from God brought by Moses with a new one that was brought by Jesus. The old covenant came with abject terror for God's people, doom and gloom and the threat of destruction, Hebrews tells us. But the new covenant is very different. It's filled with awe and wonder of God's angels, of saints who are in heaven, of the shed blood of Jesus that preaches a message of forgiveness rather than vengeance. Though the new covenant comes with grace rather than law, it is not to be trifled with nor treated casually. That's where we pick up our reading in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, and that was speaking of Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, which is God. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now that prophecy about God again shaking the heavens and the earth was first spoken by the prophet Haggai about 500 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And like many prophecies, it had an almost immediate fulfillment, but also a much later future fulfillment. And concerning the future, God promises that one day he will shake the entire universe. Now the book of Revelation talks about the great tribulation, which will be a terrible shaking. And Second Peter says that God will actually dissolve the present corrupted earth and heaven and create a perfect new one. Now all of us in Christ will live there, which is an exciting thing. God will ultimately destroy by fire all that has been polluted by man's sin, which may be why he's referred to here as a consuming fire. That's the big shaking that will be in the future. But throughout history, God has shaken the world up in smaller doses. God's discipline and judgment, sometimes permitted, sometimes directly ordained, are not like a typical light switch, flip on, flip off, totally on, totally off. They are more like a dimmer switch with different degrees of brightness, depending upon how deep the darkness of the human race, depending upon how deep the darkness of our own souls. God shakes the world in small doses as he sees fit. Think about it. Just over a century ago, we had World War I that was followed right on its heels by the Spanish flu that, that killed millions around the world. Then the Great Depression of the late 20s and 30s, followed by World War II in the 1940s, and on it goes. Depending upon where in the world you look, there have been many wars between nations, civil wars, attempts at genocide, great movements of refugees across uh, boundaries, 
plagues, droughts, famines, recessions, you name it. Birth pangs, Jesus called them. Contractions before the final days, before the big shaking. That's what we're going through now, a shaking in a smaller dose, like a moderate earthquake of 5.0 or 6.0 on the Richter scale. Not the biggie that people in Southern California fear, but a precursor that still does a lot of damage, causes a loss of life, but awakens everyone to the reality that the big one could come at any time. Right now, in some ways, it seems as if the Lord has taken the world as we knew it, grabbed it by the collar, and is shaking it, trying to get its attention. Does he have yours? What does the Hebrews 12 scripture say the reason is for the shaking? God is doing it to remove man-made things that compete with his kingdom. His kingdom is growing and advancing and is unshakable, but the kingdom of God still has many rivals here on earth. God cares too much about his people and his world to let those rivals function unchecked. Just think about what God has shaken loose in the last two or three months. So much of what we call normal life has changed. We've tried to adjust and sought to discover God's good uh, in the midst of this evil. By the way, make no mistake, this coronavirus is evil. Death is evil. But God has even used evil throughout history to accomplish his purposes of justice and discipline. Though it may disturb us, God will tolerate no rivals, no false gods or idols that we look to for life apart from God himself. All idols will eventually come down as the kingdom of Jesus, like a mountain expands all across the world and cannot be shaken, grows and his glory covers the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what God's ultimate purpose is. Well, what are some of those rivals here in America? Well, take the sports world. In a matter of a couple days, the NBA season was stopped cold. The NHL season paused. March madness became March sadness. Major League Baseball was put on hold. Later, the Masters Golf Tournament was postponed to the fall, and the Summer Olympics moved to 2021. Who knows yet how college or NFL football will be affected? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying sports are bad. In fact, there's much good in them, especially for those who make an honest living that way. But for many of us, sports are idols. Our go-to places for life and excitement, they can be rivals to God for our focus and attention. Now that most sports have ground to a halt, what do we do? Well, I guess there's always the last dance or Korean baseball or UFC or something I suppose. Secondly, there's the economy, which was, before the pandemic, as healthy as it has been for a long time, with unemployment, especially among minorities, at an all-time low. Now, in just a seven-week period, around 36 million people have filed for unemployment, with a disproportionate number of people of color suffering. And though the government has allocated an astronomical amount of money to try and alleviate this economic suffering, many small businesses have been unable to receive the aid they had hoped for. The government has doled out trillions of dollars in survival and stimulus money to try and help. But what will be the long-term effects on our national debt? Politically, the coronavirus has further exposed the depths of our political polarization and frailty. Just a few months ago, the main news story was about the upcoming national election and who would be the Democratic presidential nominee. 
that which seemed all important suddenly took a back seat to issues of survival. Now that things are beginning to ease a bit on the pandemic front, politicians are trying to use the horrors of a pandemic toward their own political advantage. Shame on them. In my opinion, our two-party system and our federal government on which so many people have traditionally staked their hope seem to be very badly shaken and broken. Things we so value in, as Americans, health, family, our educational system, our individual freedom, have all been shaken to the core. The coronavirus's combination of being very contagious and also very dangerous, especially to the aged and infirm, has brought us to our knees. How shaken are you? Here's something to consider. The degree to which you have placed your hope, trust, identity, joy, enjoyment of life in these temporary man-made things, to that degree, you too have been shaken. But a child of God should at the core not be shaken. Sure, we've all been rattled a bit, maybe even knocked off balance by all the challenges to normal life, but the people of God are meant to stand and stand firm. Which brings me to my second point. The church and its people should not be shaken. Though the world around us is shaken, filled with fear and anxiety and anger and frustration and sorrow and depression, loneliness and even despair, how can we, the church, avoid being shaken to the core? The following reflection from the distinguished missionary evangelist and author of the 20th century, e, Dr. E. Stanley Jones, I think helps us answer that question. He suffered a massive stroke during his last year of life and he wrote about that effect on him in his book, The Divine Yes. Here are his words. They say in Switzerland that the Swiss mountain climbers have a rope, the strands of which at the center are the strongest, capable of holding up a man even if all the edges of the rope have worn off. The innermost strands are the strongest. I have found that to be true in Christian experience. Many strands of my life, Dr. Jones said, have been broken by this stroke for I can no longer preach, and I cannot write, as my eyesight is so poor I cannot even see my own writing. I can only dictate into a tape recorder. This is a while ago. The things that were once dear to me for the time being are broken. The innermost strands, though, belong to the kingdom and person of Jesus. And my experience of him holds me as much as the total rope. For the innermost strands are the strongest. I need no outer props to hold up my faith, for my faith holds me. I do not possess my faith, my faith possesses me. Now listen to the words from Psalm 62. Boy, if, if ever there was a passage of scripture where we ought to camp out in while the world around us is shaking and shaken, this is it, Psalm 62. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Awesome words. I will never be shaken. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. 
So why can we live unshaken? God is our rock, our salvation, our fortress, our mighty rock, our refuge. Those are words of strength, of unshaken stability. God is strong, stable, solid, invincible. We find hope, strength, peace, safety in him. Nothing in this world is solid and stable like God. He is our rock. This is a great picture of the strength and protection and safety and stability that Psalm 62 is talking about. This picture, good luck in trying to attack that place. What a place of safety and stability. That's God for us. God is the one who saves us, keeps us safe, and will bring us safely home. He is like an impenetrable forced fortress that wards off all attackers. We can go there and find rest and peace. We can trust him. We can be honest and spill our guts to him. We can tell him everything that's on our heart, including all our fears and worries. He can take it. He will not be shaken or surprised by our honesty. He already knows us through and through. But we need a place to go to be fully human and fully transparent. And that place is God. So what's our role in this? Well, we need to seek first his kingdom, the unshakable kingdom. We have to take God at his word and believe him. We have to settle into him and rest in him. Rely on him, lean on him, trust in him, and do what he as the king tells us to do. Now, practically speaking, I think it's a good idea to let the first words into your mind in the morning be God's word of his unshakable kingdom rather than the latest morbid statistics and of death tolls and confirmed uh, coronavirus cases. And it's smart, too, to let the good news of God's rule in this world be the last words into your mind before you go to sleep. And when our daughter Emily, uh, she's now 25, was, was young, at night I would hold her while sitting in a rocking chair, and we'd just be rocking, and sometimes she'd be a little nervous or scared when it was bedtime. So I would sing, Jesus loves me to her. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They're weak, but he's strong. Amazed that my singing did not scare her even more, <laughs> she would calm down and eventually go to sleep. She was not shaken. She was in her father's hands. These following words toward the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount provide a profound place of reassurance, I believe. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. What about our lives? Have we been building sandcastles or rock fortresses? Which analogy better depicts your life or mine? See, sandcastle lives are shaken. Rock fortress lives are not. Notice I didn't say rock fortress lives are immune from storms. Not at all. They're subject to the same storms of life that sandcastle lives are. The rains still fall, the floods still come, the winds still blow, and they still beat against both houses. The difference is that rock 
fortress lives stand in the storm, while sandcastle lives are shaken and fall. Rock fortress people hear and act on believing and obeying what God says. Sandcastle people don't. They may hear, but they don't believe. Not really. All God's mighty, amazing, life-giving, joy-producing, hope-filled words do us no good unless we act on them by believing and trusting in them. That's what Jesus was trying to get through to us. And a while back, um, these following statements struck me as something I could build my life on, especially when things got rough. And maybe they'll be helpful for you too. They should be on your screen. God is there. God is aware. God cares. God answers prayers. Let me say that again. God is there. God is aware. God cares. And God answers prayers. You can teach that to your kids. Tell them the weird man with the weird wig said it. Well, maybe not. <laughs> you know, when our son Brian uh, was about eight or nine years old, he had a nasty flu-like bug. He was feverish and sweating. He was chilled and shaking. It was one of those illnesses, being a virus, where you, you just had to wait for the virus to work itself through his system before Brian would get well. It's the kind of sickness that drives parents crazy watching their kids suffer. <clears throat> As I put him to bed, all wrapped up in warm blankets, he was very anxious and shaking, in fact. I decided to pull up a chair and sit by his bed for a while just to provide some reassurance to him. He would doze off for a while, and then his eyes would pop open in fear. I would look at him and smile and pat his shoulder and pray for him and assure him he was okay. Daddy was there. After a few seconds, he'd doze off again. For hours, the cycle repeated many, many times. He could rest knowing his dad was there watching over him, caring for him, praying for him. I wanted Brian to know I was there for him. Do you think God cares about us less than that? God wants us to know that he's there. He was not alone. Brian was not alone, and neither are we. Finally, only the Lord knows what time it was, he finally turned a corner and fell sound asleep, and so I was able to go to sleep as well. But God, unlike me, never sleeps nor slumbers. I love this statement from Victor Hugo. Many of you know uh, Victor Hugo as the author of Les Miserables. This is what he said. He said, have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Have you been shaken to the core in these days? Worry, anxiety, fear, and anguish will get you nowhere. Worry does not purchase tomorrow's peace. It just robs you of today's strength. Child of God, God's got this. God's got you. You can trust him. You can rest in him. God is awake. That brings us to our third and final point. As the world is shaking and quaking, we who have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken are called to live differently. It's not enough that we simply not shake. We are called to something higher. God's people are to be stirred, not shaken. 
See, God's desire is always that we go beyond simply not having bad thoughts or bad feelings or bad behavior. He also wants us to be filled with good stuff instead. For example, it, it's not enough that we simply not hate someone. We are to love them fervently with Christ's self-sacrificing love. And it's not enough that we just not hurt people. We are to reach out and help and serve them joyfully in whatever way we can. Hopefully you get the picture. In the same way, we're not simply to avoid being shaken. We are to be stirred in our hearts. The Apostle Paul put it this way, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me suggest a couple things briefly as we bring this message to its conclusion. First of all, we are to be stirred up toward God. Let's look back at that Hebrews 12 scripture that we looked at at the beginning of the sermon uh, and read these words again. Verses 27 to 29 says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's that word, therefore, that Pastor Chris encouraged us to watch for last week. Our response to God, shaking the shakeable and giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken should be first, gratitude, and second, acceptable worship. I don't know about you, but I can't thank God enough for his kingdom. I belong to the king. If you're in Christ, you do too. By the grace of God, I know where I'm headed when I die, to life in his eternal kingdom forever. You know, every once in a while, it kind of, it's like God removes the curtain, and he reminds me that this whole Christian faith thing is not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a fable, it's not even a really, really cool dream from which one day I'll wake up. It's real. It's really real. No, that's huge, people. To know that the major challenge and mystery of life, what happens after death, is settled and secure, all I can say is thank you, God. No matter how bad things get here on earth, God's kingdom and God as king are unshakable. And I'm part of that. I hope you are too. If you're not, you can be. Stay tuned. That spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving leads us to worship. Now, when we gather on Sunday mornings, whether live or live streaming, worship of God is our main purpose. The worship songs we sing at the beginning of the service are not the opening act to warm us up to the main event, the sermon. Worship is not designed to simply wake us up so we'll be alert enough to listen to the sermon. We worship God because he alone is worthy of worship. I love this passage in Revelation 5. Uh, the Apostle John describes this scene. Now try to picture this in your mind. This time for godly imagination. Listen to this. And I heard, this is what John wrote, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that sound? Lions, tigers, whales, birds of all sizes and shapes and colors, dogs, cats, yes, even cats, proclaiming God's glory. Worms, I mean, think about it. Every creature 
crying out praise to God. Kind of like the opening scene of The Lion King, only tons better. It will be so powerful that the elders who sit on thrones before God will all fall down and worship. You know, worship is why we come together like this in the first place, to worship God through song, through the scriptures, through prayer, through giving, through the preaching of his word. We're here to worship God. It's what we were made for. We ought to remember to whom we're singing or giving or praying. He is God, the God of the whole universe, the God before whom every one of us would be flat on our faces, out cold were we to see him. He's that awesome. He's that majestic. He's that great. Hebrews says we're to worship him with reverence and awe. You know, recently as our culture struggles to get back to normal, I've been thinking about these questions. Maybe uh, you might want to too. How have I changed during this time of the coronavirus? What are the ways that I've changed for the better? What are the ways I think, feel, and behave that I want to hold on to even after the crisis is over? One way we should all think about changing is how we relate to God. Let God flip the switch in our hearts in our approach to him. What do I mean by that? Well, to move from casual to reverent, from passive to active worship, from half-hearted to fully in, from distracted to focused, from too familiar to deep honor and awe, from yawning to yearning, from Sunday to every day. True worship of God does many very important things for us. It reminds us of God's immeasurable greatness and comforts us in all our sad human weakness. It lifts us above our drowning problems and drops us in the safe and solid place of his all-sufficiency. It exposes our own shallowness and sinfulness and plunges us into the cleansing stream of his eager forgiveness. It satisfies our hunger for God while it whets our appetite for more of him. And in the process of true worship of God, we marvelously become more like him. You know, and the amazing thing about worship is that the more we worship God, the less fear and anxiety we feel. Worship is the great antidote to the disease of fear. Worship increases our faith, and as our faith increases, our fears decrease. True, we can't see him yet, but he's here right now with us, as are many, I believe, of his glorious, glorious angels. Oh, Lord, give us spiritual eyes to see. So we're to be stirred toward God. Second, we're to be stirred toward what really matters, people. In another place in the book of Hebrews, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, I want to get a little personal here as I share some of my journey during this coronavirus outbreak. Maybe something I say will stir you up or encourage you. First of all, I have to confess, I'm a diehard sports fan, especially football and ice hockey. I played one but love watching them both. At first, back in March, I really missed checking the scores of the games and reading about my favorite teams. But the old stories that I could access grew tired and I moved on. I decided to spend the time that I use, used to use watching sports, reading books, and learning Italian. 
with Duolingo. I've learned to say important things like, it is my penguin, and March comes between February and April. Profound things like that. I can't wait to say those things if I ever get to travel to Italy. My competitive juices still get flowing through the game Wordscape. Some of you may play that. And I thought I was really something when I got to over 300,000 brilliance points. Then I looked and discovered I was like in 6,630th place, just in the state of North Carolina. Oh well. There's nothing wrong with games and escapes and sports and enjoying and following them. But sometimes something has to be taken away from us for a while in order for its hold over us to be broken. In other words, once you learn to live without something that God shakes loose from your life, you realize that you haven't really been diminished as a person at all. In fact, maybe places in our hearts that were previously occupied with things that seem to matter have now opened wider to embrace the things that really do. I believe God has used the coronavirus to teach us, at least he's trying to teach us, that we cannot and dare not take for granted our loved ones. Haven't we been stirred up in our love for family and our church family through our being apart? In this case, absence has indeed made the heart grow fonder. For me, I'm finding a deeper love even for those with whom I live, Shirley and our son, Luke. Maybe it's because they're the only ones right now with whom I can have actual human contact. Now, Shirley and I have been married now for nearly 31 years. I'm still learning what loving her like God does is all about. But praise God for small steps of progress. These days of COVID-19 have helped me to think about how to do this better. Now, my basic human condition, I'll be honest with you, I'm hardwired to complain and be critical. I just am, but that's the old me. The Bible calls it my flesh. The new me can do much better than that. It's kind of exciting for me to see recently a deeper motivation to say kinder things, to compliment her more, to criticize less. Now I may get home and Shirley will say, well, that's news to me, <laughs> but I'm sensing a shift in my own heart. For example, my morning ritual has changed to include making a fresh pot of coffee, even grinding our own beans, because Shirley loves to start her day that way. And now, so do I. It's a small thing, to be sure, but small things matter. We also have been having a great time catching up on old episodes of Blue Bloods in NCIS Los Angeles. It's a blast trying to solve the mysteries together, and I also love pointing out things that are too far-fetched to actually happen in real life. Still a little critical, I guess. As for Luke, as you may or may not know, uh, he was adopted from Thailand over 20 years ago, and he has special needs that impair his mental faculties. But he is riveted to the computer screen every Sunday morning with Shirley and me as we enjoy the live streaming worship service. I'm trying to interact with him more and more patiently. Sometimes I actually succeed, but I've got tons more to learn to love him well. A couple of days ago, I decided to explain to him the story of Daniel and the lion's den. I tried my best to tell the story in such a way that would capture his heart and, and, and so he could see how great God is. I'm not sure how well that went, but anyway, a few hours after the storytelling time, Shirley asked our son Luke, who was that story about that you and daddy were talking about? And he asked, Dr. Luke? Luke loves it when Pastor Chris mentions Dr. Luke in his sermons because that's Luke's name. In fact, one time Luke brought his play stethoscope to church. Um, it was hilarious. Uh, 
wouldn't be surprised if he's wearing it now. And Shirley told Luke, no, the story isn't about Dr. Luke, it's about Daniel. To which our son replied, oh, does he go to our church? <laughs> Shirley and I both had a laugh over that one. But a couple days later, while I was mowing the grass, one of the places God seems to be able to get my attention, I thought about it some more. Maybe Daniel, or Danielle, does go to our church. Not that Daniel, of course, but perhaps another one. Or maybe another Dr. Luke. The name is not the point here. What matters is the calling on one's life. Is it possible that this coronavirus pause in normal life has been the means for God to call someone like you into a deeper walk with him that will result in doing great things for God. Why not? Perhaps you're sensing a new stirring to take the gospel to your neighbors or to those at school or on the job or even to the world. If so, ask God to increase that stirring and talk to someone you know and trust who will pray for you and give you godly counsel on how to move forward to put feet to that stern. We really need each other, friends, brothers and sisters. So let's keep meeting together during these times of Zoom and live streaming. Let's keep reaching out in love to family and friends and even more so as our opportunities to be with them increase. Let's think about how to stir each other up to good things, even if, like our son, they're slow to grasp. People matter, they really do. It's one thing I hope I don't lose when things get more like they were. Jesus said the two most important things in life are loving God and loving people. Everything else is temporary and won't last beyond this life. Beloved, let us love one another. Now maybe you're watching this message and you bravely endured the crazy introduction, listened to the Bible passages and my ramblings about them, even tolerated my comments on life and culture but you're sensing a deeper thing going on inside you, a stirring in your soul. Maybe you realize that an awful lot of your life is a sandcastle and that you're on shaky ground, and that's shaking you up. That's a good thing. Just don't fall asleep in the sand. Starting a relationship with God is not complicated. He loves you. He's reaching out to you. He has sent you a friend request, so to speak. By nature, we're not God's friends at all. We've ignored him, done the opposite of what he tells us, and made other things our best friends, in reality, our gods. And because of that, we have made ourselves God's enemies. It's not a good place to be, by the way. But God built a bridge to us by sending his son to earth to show us his love and power, to die a terrible death, to pay for and forgive our stupid and selfish sins, our crimes against God, and to rise again in life to reach out and welcome you to cross that bridge with him from where you are to where he is. He won't force you, drag you, or trick you. He invites you. Will you accept the friend request? The next move is yours. Let's close with a word of prayer. First, Father, I bring before you my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. I ask that during this time where you're shaking the things that can be shaken. Father, that each would draw closer to you, deeper, trusting in you, finding that core like that rope, uh, the strands of that cord, strong in faith of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I pray you'd stir all of us up to love and good deeds, 
Lord, to make the most of this time. And for those who are out there who are listening and say, yo, I have to admit, Lord, that most of my life has been sandcastles. I've built them up and been proud of them, and then the waves have come and knocked them down again. Lord, I want to build my life on the rock fortress now. I admit that I have messed up my life and done what has been displeasing to you. I'm sorry for that, Lord. I'm very sorry. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you suffered the death I should have suffered by dying on the cross. Thank you that you paid for my sins, but you rose triumphantly from the dead and now are welcoming me, inviting me to walk across that bridge to you, with you, to your unshakable kingdom. I take your hand now, Lord. I will walk with you. Thank you for cleansing and forgiving me. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. If you made that decision today to trust Jesus, to walk with him on that bridge to his kingdom, please tell somebody. They'll be excited to hear about it. And even contact somebody at the church. They can help you begin your new relationship with him. We'll close our service with a, a worship song. Please join as we worship together.